The cost of Ukrainian victory will be high, and there are still many voices calling for peace, uh, especially since the full-scale war started in February 22, and it approaches its first anniversary. But peace at any price surely rewards the aggressor rather than the victim, and it may just provide Russia with the breathing space it needs to rearm and reignite its assault in years to come. So what would need to happen for negotiations to be meaningful and for a lasting peace to be found that is equitable and sensitive to the victim as well as the aggressor? Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. If you enjoy the material we create and are interested in our fantastic guests, then please do like and subscribe to boost the popularity of our videos in YouTube. Today, I have great pleasure in speaking for the second time to Andreas Umland, author, editor, academic, and prolific researcher in international relations, politics, and political science. He gained an MA in political science from Stanford University and a PhD in politics from the University of Cambridge. He's also lectured in Ukraine, Russia, and the UK. Andres is senior analyst at the Stockholm Center for East European Studies and an analyst at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. He is also editor of publications Soviet and post-Soviet politics and society and Ukrainian voices. Now, that was the description I used last time we spoke. Hopefully that is still accurate, Andres. Yeah, except that the, um, the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies is a part of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. So that was a little bit, but it was all correct, basically. Well, that's great. Well, let's jump into the questions because there's a lot to unpack uh, since we spoke six months ago. Uh, so let's turn to this idea of uh, a sort of equitable peace. Now, peace without power uh, it seems to me in the Russian context makes no sense. So does Ukraine really need to have NATO accession in order for there to be a lasting peace treaty? That would be a peace treaty backed up with a stick, not just a carrot. Well, that would be the ideal solution. Um, indeed, uh, that would then uh, create um, a new condition basically for Ukraine and that it would be embedded and it would then be similar to countries like Estonia, Latvia that also have um, borders with, with Russia, but uh, they are safe in, in spite of being militarily, you know, much weaker even than, than Ukraine. But I think I'm afraid we are very far uh, from a NATO accession. Um, Sometimes I'm, I'm trying to sort of uh, take a little bit the heat out of the Ukrainian discussion by uh, saying some, somewhat provocatively that Ukraine may only, it may happen that Ukraine will only enter NATO when it will not need NATO anymore. So that is the, the sad, uh, uh, I'm afraid, uh, prospect here. Uh, it's like with an insurance company, if you like, that, you know, you can sign the insurance uh, when when things are fine but once you are in trouble it, it's it's very difficult to get an insurance uh, because then it's clear that the that the insurance then immediately it takes uh, takes action and uh, as long as there is this conflict i think there will be always some countries in nato that will would probably veto um, an accession of ukraine to nato and that, of course, applies as well to um, to the EU accession uh, and the idea of having stable borders. At the moment, of course, Ukraine's international borders are violated uh, in the Donbass and the Crimea. Um, would a stable peace be dependent on actually liberating the entirety of Ukraine's territory? That is Zelensky's maximalist aims, of course. Um, or... Is a peace possible uh, within, you know, freezing the current borders, or, or or does that inherently build in more instability and store up problems for the future? My impression is that basically this sort of um, ceasefire, peace, temporary truce um, scenario has now uh, disappeared with these new annexations in September last year because that has basically made the Crimean case similar to um, these, to the cases of these mainland Ukrainian oblasts. They are now all officially 
parts uh, from the Russian point of view, parts of the Russian uh, Federation. And they have also uh, taken out the specificity of the Crimean case, uh, which was there before. There was, for instance, the strange division in uh, the previous negotiations uh, between Ukraine and Russia that were quite intense. Um, the distinction between the Donbas on the one side and Crimea on the other side. Now with the annexations, this has, in my perception at least, all become one package, um, both for Russia, for Ukraine, perhaps not yet for all um, international observers who may make still um, distinctions between um, the annexed mainland uh, territories and annexed Crimea. Uh, but um, in my perception, this is, this is now not any longer uh, distinguishable in, in practical terms and political terms. And so I think that we will only go get a, some sort of stable situation when Ukrainian uh, territorial integrity is fully restored. That means including uh, Crimea. And um, I think even that if we see this uh, year um, a new offensive from, uh, from Ukraine, uh, from Kiev, um, in eastern southern Ukraine, I guess one of the aims of, of such an offensive will be basically to cut um, uh, Crimea off uh, the supply lines and, um, and then perhaps not uh, invade Crimea, but uh, basically force uh, Russia to, uh, to cede uh, Crimea uh, if it cannot um, supply it anymore uh, via the um, uh, the bridge and via the uh, the land connection or via uh, ferries. So once that happens, I think then Crimea, the Crimea issue will be also solved. And it's very difficult, albeit impossible, to see Putin actually reversing these, you know, I mean, we call them legal decisions. I mean, only within the context of Russia is it seen as legal to seize territory and label it as your own. But within the Russian context, it's impossible to see Putin actually climbing down and reversing those steps, isn't it? So if yeah. there was to be a peace treaty, which would have to be dependent on Russia reversing uh, that legal framework um, within the Russian Duma, what are the conditions or what needs to be true for that to happen? Uh, I assume Putin would have to be out of power. Uh, I assume there would have to be some incredible internal pressure or dislocation um, to allow any kind of Russian leader to, to make that step. Um, Russia isn't collapsing, though, is it? Its economy isn't collapsing. It doesn't have those kind of external or even internal political pressures yet to put in place those conditions that would be a prerequisite for uh, a stable peace treaty. Yeah, I think that the only way to achieve this is force. That does not have to be, like I just indicated, with um, um, with the Crimea case, uh, military force. It can be um, a sort of indirect force in, for instance, cutting um, Crimea from uh, water supplies, from fresh water supply, from uh, uh, trade uh, with uh, Russia, uh, but it will have to be through force. I don't see any um, prospect here for a sort of um, negotiated or let's say softly negotiated um, peace. Um, I think Russia will only cede the annexed territories, whether it's the mainland territory or, or the um, uh, the Crimean Peninsula, only um, under pressure. Uh, and then perhaps this pressure may also lead to a regime change, to perhaps even a collapse of the R Russian state, to a revolution, to whatever um, there may happen. Um, and then also the constitutional changes that are now uh, necessary to actually um, make it official, so to say, that Russia has not any longer control of that. That is, by the way, also the reason why, one of the reasons why negotiations are currently, um, I think, useless because um, while it was easy for Russia to change the constitu its constitution uh, in 2014 and 2022 when annexing territories, it's much more difficult for the current regime uh, to reverse um, these annexations. Um, people say that, you know, the, the Russian State Duma and, and the Russian parliament will do whatever 
Putin tells them to do. But I, my feeling is that this is not uh, that to actually cede already annexed territory um, as, in a sort of soft way in a, as a result of negotiations um, sort of deal uh, will be very difficult uh, with the current regime and what would have to happen is a new regime and then a, a larger constitutional change perhaps in which then also these territories uh, will go. But, but the constitutional issue is not, not the only um, hindrance for uh, for negotiations, for currently pr um, productive uh, negotiations. And there are other conditions as well, aren't there? So there's yeah. the uh, kidnapped children, of which many thousands of children have been filtrated out uh, of the country. Um, it's not clear how many of those could be repatriated or even located. Uh, there's the issue of reparations for all the damage. Um, as well as many other issues, you know, um, Russia may even be ejected from Ukrainian territory, but may still continue to fire missiles from Belgorod and from Belarus. Um, so there are a number of hoops that need to be jumped through. And it's very difficult to see how the Russian state um, would, would accept all of those. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, there's also um, the issue now, uh, which, which has always been there since 2014, that you have constituencies in both in Ukraine and Russia, uh, more radical nationalist constituencies that would not allow for any negotiated uh, compromise, uh, at least not uh, regarding territory. Um, maybe other issues uh, are more negotiable, but um, you have now <clears throat> in both countries, um, you know, people who have invested in this war, who have lost, uh, you know, relatives and, and friends and so on, uh, or in, in the U Ukrainian case, also property and, 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 and their life prospects and whatnot in this war. And so have you, you have in both countries uh, more, of course, in, in Ukraine than in Russia, constituencies where, which would not um, allow any sort of <clears throat> fishy deal where, uh, let's say, Ukraine would, uh, would agree to, to give away some, uh, some, some territory. And also there's the strategic issue here in that the, um, uh, it's simply unwise for a country to make these sort of concessions uh, because not only Ukraine, but also other countries like Moldova or Georgia they have made concessions and they have sort of uh, not insisted on restoring their um, uh, their territorial integrity as did um, Ukraine in 2014. They have agreed to some sort of process, to some sort of negotiation format, to some sort of um, OSCE um, uh, mediation and so on. And in all of these cases, this has brought nothing uh, and the, the the countries have remained split, uh, Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine. And um, so it's also strategically, in a way, given the, the experience that we have now, also, let's say, the experience of Chechnya, which signed a deal in 1996, uh, the Khasavurt Agreement, and then got another Chechen war um, three years later, when the Russian army was then ready to invade um, Chechnya. Um, again, and then uh, got a horrible uh, second um, Chechen war. So this doesn't make sense. It is also, I think, for the international community, not yet fully understood that to make some sort of fishy deal where Ukraine loses territory would be destructive for the international system, because that would then perhaps suggest to other countries that they could do something similar to what Russia does, um, you know, get nuclear weapons, then snap a part of a neighboring country and then insist on some sort of um, a peace negotiation and then come out of the uh, of such an operation with a territorial gain. So um, there are many reasons and the ones you mentioned are also very relevant uh, that um, currently at least negotiations do not make sense. Yes, I was at an event uh, last week where a ex-British diplomat uh, asked the most extraordinary question, but I think it's symptomatic of perhaps the mindset um, of, uh, you know, our own apparatchiks. And his question was, well, you know, why don't we just throw Crimea to Putin like a, like a scrap of meat? Why don't we formalize the ownership of that? And that could form the basis of a peace treaty. It seems to me 
that that is such a fundamental misunderstanding uh, of of uh, Putin's mindset, the Russian it, mindset. It, yeah, I well, wouldn't how... say well, that is basically what we did in 2014. You know, we had some minor sanctions. Uh, actually, the sanctions uh, in response to the annexation of Crimea um, were largely only about Crimea. They did not really hit Russia. Uh, there were no sectoral sanctions. The sectoral sanctions only started the first ones in July after uh, EU citizens were killed in the MH17 um, flight that was shot down by, by Russia. And so we did that already. And that then uh, encouraged um, Putin to go further. And, you know, and if we had reacted to the annexation of Crimea more harshly, and there were lots of proposals to, um, to stop uh, buying Russian energy and to uh, do all sorts of things, then maybe the Donbass war would not have happened. And then we would be now in a in a different world. So, um, and, you know, and we, we, we did that also with, with Transnistria in Moldova. We did that basically with um, um, with Abkhazia and uh, the Tsrin Valley region in, in Georgia. So we did all that already. I mean, that is the odd thing of these proposals. Yeah, I mean, we tried that already uh, and it didn't work and it actually encouraged um, uh, then each time Russia to, to go further, to try another one to, you know, if you can get Crimea, well, why not that, then getting Narva, yeah, or why not getting Odessa? Why not? There are lots of other things that Russia wants to get. And uh, so if we throw Crimea, then, you know, people would ask in Moscow, throw, throw us more, you know, we want to we want to get some more stuff. Um, that was actually what, what, um, what I think was happening uh, in the last uh, 30 years. And there may be now people <clears throat> in, in Moscow who are really surprised you know, because they they would say, well, what we did here is we did that basically already 30 years ago in Moldova, and, and there were no sanctions at all. And, you know, we, we had Moldova since, uh, Transnistria since that time. Also, then we, we used the regular Russian army, not some sort of uh, irregular troops as we as we did first in, in the Donbass. And we we also used, by the way, uh, Lebed then used in 1992 the argument that the that the uh, government, the Moldovan government um, in um, in Chisinau is worse than the SS. So the, you know this was the same narrative about fascism, and we did that again in in uh, Georgia in 2008. And then uh, you know after the after Georgia 2008, uh, there was the reset, there was the modernization partnership. Um, and so on. So uh, Nord Stream One, Nord Stream Two. So uh, we did all that already, and now we should we should try that. Uh, and now suddenly uh, the West is actually um, more consistent in in its uh, actions. And and people in Moscow are wondering why now? Why not uh, 1992 in Moldova or 2008 in in Georgia? Why and why or 2014 in in Ukraine, why, why suddenly there's now such a fuss about uh, the uh, special military operation. And of course, that is reinforced by the idea or the mutual misunderstanding here that we see Ukraine as a sovereign nation. We see it uh, now, especially as an independent culture uh, and civilization um, that is trying to make its own way in the world. Whereas the mindset amongst Putin's regime is that Ukraine is not a thing. Uh, that it is not an independent entity, that it's an artificial creation, um, which is a lot of the genocidal rhetoric coming out of Russia. But I think many of them genuinely believe that from the regime down through the propagandists and military. Yeah, and this is this is scary. And that is actually um, then the, the, the plan, the agenda that comes out of it actually reminds of fascism. I mean, that is then, um, if you if you take this discourse seriously, then Ukraine is not um, a nation by itself, not a country by itself. It's just a part of Russia. And there's something wrong with this part of Russia. It's a sort of Western part of Russia. And um, because there's something wrong with it, you need the special operation uh, to do something with it. You need to clean it. You need to sort of um, uh, have a new birth of this, um, of this Western uh, Russian territory called called Ukraine, you need new Ukrainians, so to say, that will be fully a part of the um, of the Russian nation. And um, and that is actually already, I think there are, you, one could make an argument that this is actually um, something fascist, this sort of 
new birth, uh, the, the cleansing, the liberation, the, the sort of, uh, so in, in the Russian mindset, this is actually not at all colonialism or imperialism because these are not uh, foreign territories. This is just Russia. It's just, uh, which has come under this, um, uh, under this influence of the West and uh, Western fascism and Western LGBT and Western feminism and liberalism. And uh, one almost wants to say Trotskyism to, to go back to Stalin, you know, and the, the British Japanese sort of foreign secret agents as, as Stalin would, would, would have said perhaps. So, um, and something needs to be done now with this part of Russia. Uh, and that's also why it's a, you know, in a, it, quite logically, it's a special operation. It's not a war because you cannot wage a war against yourself. That's, uh, that's obviously ridiculous. So it, one needs a special operation and this special operation, um, I believe uh, could be labeled uh, as being fascist. It's as if they're Russians that have gone wrong. I think that is the uh, is the mindset there. Whereas if you look at it from the Ukrainian perspective, I think Ukrainians, I get the impression, have been rather sort of humble and not really pushed themselves forward uh, over the last 30 years. Now they're becoming much more vocal and they're saying, no, Russian civilization itself owes a huge amount to Ukraine. It's Ukraine was the original uh, Kievan Rus, uh, and Russia, like a sort of kleptocratic magpie, has stolen so much of its own political and cultural identity uh, and relabeled it as Russian, but actually it comes from, from Ukraine itself. So if anything, Putin's actions are pulling the two territories and cultures apart rather than uh, bringing them together. Yeah, yeah, and there's now, um, I've just read an, uh, an interview of the uh, of the mayor of Kharkiv, which is, you know, very close to the Russian-Ukrainian border, which used to be um, a Russian-speaking city, also a pro-Russian city, the second largest uh, city of Ukraine. And he says, well, we are now more anti-Russian than Western Ukraine, yeah, as a result of what we experienced during the last um, last year. Um, I, I mean, there's, I think, while well, I'll, I'll sort of see um, a lot of specificities here and a lot of specifically Russian pathologies in all of that, there's still also, um, I would say, some generic things that are going on here. In that, for instance, these claims um, about uh, territory that is outside uh, one state that actually belongs to to one state and and all of these these sort of the argumentation about Crimea that has been stolen and unjustly given to another country and um, also the the way in which now the Ukrainian nation is and the Ukrainian state is emerging out of this war is of course that's all very specific and very special but it's also something that that actually many sort of comparative historians and comparative political scientists would see as actually something quite typical. You know, this is the the typical way, the, the way that Russia sort of is justifying its claims in terms of um, self-defense, in terms of historical injustice, in terms of solidarity for its co-nationals outside the Russian Federation. This is something very typical that imperial powers have done before. And also the way in which now Ukraine emerges as a, uh, as a nation state, a much more unified nation state out of this war is also something uh, actually that was there before. And there has been this famous saying, I think by Charles Tilly, a, a political scientist who said, not only do states make wars, but wars make states. Um, you know, this is something that um, is of course now uh, happening in Ukraine in a very specific way. But it's also reminiscent of um, of other um, situations. Actually, it reminds me also a, a dispute I usually have with Armenians over basically over the last thirty years. Whenever you know you you mention you, you you meet Armenians, they would try to tell you about the specificity of Nagorno-Karabakh, yeah, and and that there's something so special about Nagorno-Karabakh, and there is this somewhat naive. Um, believe that if they can only explain to you how specific Nagorno-Karabakh is, then it, you know, and if, if enough people can be persuaded of that, then the West, uh, the West will actually support Armenia in its claim 
um, or Nagorno-Karabakh. But the problem here is, of course, and I'm trying to communicate uh, unsuccessfully this to Armenians, is this, exactly your explanation of it makes it actually less likely that you will be successful because many Western politicians will remember their own countries, you know, and their own histories and their own neighbors who may have similar claims about their territory, you know, that something has been moved unjustly in history and that actually if one looks deeply into history, then actually some territory which is either in your own country belongs to another country or some territory which is not in your own country belongs actually to your country. And so the, the all of these um, Putinist uh, rhetorical tricks, so to say, are um, are specific, but they are also familiar um, uh, in a way from from other periods, from other situations, uh, maybe in totally different uh, regions, in totally different contexts. And that's a can of worms, which the post Second World War, uh, post Second World War international order was intended to fix, wasn't it? Is to say that whatever the competing claims of territory uh, there have been in the past, we're going to draw a line under all of that and move forward. Uh, yeah. And Putin sort of torn torn that up. Yeah, and I, I think the, the the real specificity here is uh, in for the post-war world is the actual annexation. Uh, so it's the increase of the territory of, of Russia and sort of and, and people are and the Russians are sort of proud of it that you know they they are the largest by far the largest country and now you know what they need is to, to become even larger I mean there's something actually deeply pathological about it because the the, the Russian nation had, has has not yet actually taken control of of its own territory of the Russian Federation you know that you know there's there's this is not a developed country there are lots of parts of this huge country that are totally underdeveloped and undiscovered even, but, but they're now taking more territory and more, uh, and, and they, they have now a constitution that they lays claim even to some Ukrainian territories, which are not actually under Russian control. So there's, there's something deeply pathological here, of course, which is, a, a, you know, for a political scientist or um, historian, perhaps, uh, difficult to explain it's actually would be perhaps a um, a question to a psychologist or a psychopathologist or something like that um, in order to explain this uh, this hunger for territory it, it it speaks to a very deep historical and psychological trauma doesn't it and what ukrainians and finns would point out you know and and, and i can speak from personal experience having sort of been on the karelia uh, area which used to belong to finland um you know, you have duchess and you have various things there, um, but it's it's a neglected territory and Russia takes this territory. And then you have to ask, well, how does it utilize it? How does it uh, how does it treat that territory it's gained? And I think um, Finns and Ukrainians have a deep understanding that, that, that they treat it very badly. Um, you know, they defile the territory, they pollute it, um, they don't care for the stuff. So it's almost like this, this territorial avarice. Um, they don't really know what to do with the stuff once they've got it. But if they can't get it, then they'll launch, you know, scorched earth tactics. And that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. You know, if we can't own it, if we can't control it, we're going to destroy it so that no one benefits from it. Yeah. And that is now um, the, the sad story of Kherson, which... Uh after its liberation is now uh, being, um, you know, destroyed by, by Russian artillery and, you know, as a, as a punishment, if you like, of, the, uh, of going back to under, under Ukrainian control. And the odd thing about Finland is, of course, also that Finland is now on the verge of entering NATO and Russia, and Russia does not seem to worry, uh, be worried too much about it. That under, undermines this whole Western popular Western theory about NATO allegedly triggering all of that. If when 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 Finland enters NATO, the uh, the Russian NATO border will double, uh, but that does not seem to worry um, Russia too much uh, because NATO in general does not worry Russia, in fact, too much uh, because they know that NATO will not attack Russia because Russia has more actually nuclear warheads than all NATO countries taken together. 
and then the Russians know that, and they know that the West knows that, and that's why actually NATO is not um, the issue here. May, NATO may, of course, be the issue in that it uh, is also spreading certain values, and that it uh, then would make a Ukrainian democratization and and um, successful development possible. In that way, it then uh, of course threatens Putin's regime, and in that way, NATO is indeed a threat. But it's not uh, really a, a national security threat for Ukraine uh, for Russia. That's right. And, uh, you know, we can have these arguments endlessly about sort of NATO and provocation. I like to put them into the bucket marked propaganda uh, rather than genuine, you know, geopolitical questions. Um, but there's one story, I think, which has been well, there's several stories that are, are, are underreported in this war. One, of course, is the filtration of, of children, um, which is a horrific crime. The other one, however, I want to explore with you um, coming back to this idea of cleansing um, we know that up to a million Russians have fled Russia, and many now reside in places like Uzbekistan, um, even Kazakhstan, Georgia, um, Turkey, and, and all over. There are vast amounts. You know, the Russian diaspora has increased in a way that perhaps we hadn't seen since, well, the 90s, perhaps to the same extent, I'm not sure, but certainly since the revolution of 1917. And this has sort of been reported as people either fleeing conscription, it's been mislabeled perhaps as people who are against the war, which I think incenses Ukrainians. But there's something deeper, I think, going on here that we've missed. And Putin, in his own rhetoric, has labelled it as such, and that is a cleansing of Russia itself, of Russians who have been spoiled by Western liberal values. Yeah, and um, apparently it, it it has been quite often the case that basically um, the Russian state have sort has sort of signaled to uh, um, to Russian citizens, uh, opposition members to to leave the country, and has given them the time also to leave the country, and then only uh, arrests them when they uh, when they repeatedly re refuse to go. Um, as a sort of uh, actually the, the second best solution. So the, the, the best solution is if they just leave and, and never come back. Um, and even, uh, you know, the, the, the somewhat paradoxical aspect is here that it seems to be even the case that these people are being uh, left to go to leave Russia, although perhaps uh, the people in Moscow, the power holders may know that once they are in the diaspora, they will continue working against Putin. So, but but they but that is that seems to be still the preferred rather than putting them straight into prison uh, and not let them actually go and and uh, be active against Putin uh, abroad. So um, yeah, there, there is also here a, a certain a cleansing, and then uh, I mean yeah, but but I think on the whole with these last. Um, immigration wave, um, it's probably problematic also for Russia because there may be, actually may have now many highly qualified people left who would have otherwise stayed and who were never politically, particularly active, who just, as you mentioned, uh, were fleeing conscription and they um, sort of uh, want to have a, um, a relaxed life and not fear every day that they may be picked up on the street and and drawn into into the army and sent to um, to Ukraine. And that is one of the problems, isn't it? Because you know many of those who left would not necessarily have been that active politically. They may have passively aligned themselves with a certain point of view. Um, but if you compare that to Ukrainians and even people in Iran, for instance, who rather than fleeing, in things like Madan and the protests we see in Iran, people have stayed to fight for their conception of the state uh, mm -hmm. and to resist authority, which suggests to me that they have a stake in that country, that they feel that part of their identity is linked to that territory and country. Now, of course, Russians are can be quite nationalist. They also have... Um, you know, strong sentiments about Russian culture, etc. But the flight of up to a million Russians suggests, to me at least, that they don't feel that they have any kind of ownership or responsibility um, in the state in in the state that uh, you know that that they 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 think they're part of. 
Yeah, but what I find actually most surprising in this uh, during the last year that I don't know of any attempt uh, to organize um, a general strike. Uh, so I can understand that people don't want to go on the street because uh, and then you know get to get pick, picked up by by the police and then put perhaps um, into prison or uh, being fined with with huge uh, fines that uh, will then make them poor basically I can understand that but if if now with social media, I'm not even sure you you need that much of a civil society to to organize a, a general strike. You what you just need is a campaign and a, a sort of a messaging, and then you know if you then get a few million people to, to just stay at home and not go uh, not go to work, you know that would be that would be and then to say you know we will only go to work again once the once the war stops. That would have been enough, you know, and then, and, but of course, there's a collective action problem that you would then have, a, you know, people basically looking on each other, you know, who's, who's going to stay at home, other, but, but I mean, it would be in the interest of the Russian people to do that, you know, obviously, because this war is not going to get them anywhere. They're going to be the losers in any way. Um, uh, there's no victory really here. And so one would think that this shouldn't be too difficult to do. And then, uh, of course, the, the, the Russian economy needs, needs to function for the war to go on. You need a huge, there's a huge logistical uh, machinery behind it that needs to function. And if, if a few million people would just go into, into a strike and not go stop working anymore, you cannot put them all into prison, um, you know, and, and that, but you need them to work and then and then the, the war would actually stop because you, you wouldn't be able to to have, to have the supply lines working anymore. So so that is really something that that I find really troubling. That why wouldn't you at least try to organize something like that and then uh, and then see whether it works? And uh, you know I I would actually expect something like that to work much better than. Um, street demonstrations and uh, what, what sort of there are also now these smaller terrorist groups that apparently that um, are active within Russia and um, maybe they are linked to Ukraine but I'm not even sure that they are necessarily linked to Ukraine there may be actually because there's an old Russian tradition going back to the 19th century of political terrorism so um, you know that is that may have been the uh, the uh, the force behind uh, the killing of Daria Dugina, for instance, or maybe not. I mean, we don't know it exactly, but there have been many, many incidents in Russia over the last year that um, that involve a lot of risk for the uh, people who are doing that. And um, but there has never been the attempt to organize just a plain general strike. Even something as passive as, for instance, painting Ukrainian flags on every lamppost on every bus stop um i obviously haven't been to moscow so i couldn't definitively say that's not happened but i haven't seen anything you say on social media which would would be some evidence of that um we think back to the protests in belarus where a lot of creative uh methods were adopted to show uh, that people had sympathy for the protest as you say we see nothing on, on a sort of organic scale uh, in, in that respect. And in fact, it seems to me, and this is a question I want to put to them, it seems to me the Russian liberal opposition has fallen into a trap by Navalny becoming a hostage of the regime, it seems to have tied their hands. So they're very effective media communicators, but the level of actual activism seems to have dropped to zero. The number of sort of plans or campaigns to try, as you say, to ignite some form of Russian passive resistance, again, seems to me is at a zero level. I see no evidence of the liberal Russian opposition, either at home or even abroad. You know, are they organizing marches in Western capitals of the Russian diaspora? None of this stuff seems to be going on. And there seems to be no intention to uh, to actually actively oppose the regime? Well, I would uh, partly defend uh, the people in the diaspora. I know some people who are active and uh, who are organizing 
things and they they have these congresses they're trying to organize themselves and there's also some media activity and um they're also trying to help ukrainian refugees um, now the, the problem is that these um even the anti-putinist diaspora russians they they may now find it difficult to actually cooperate with the ukrainians abroad because there's now so much alienation that um, this has even drawn um, a wedge between um, these sort of various anti-Putinist uh, forces. So, um, yeah, I mean, in, uh, there's something going on in, in, I know, in Poland and in Germany and so on, but it's not very visible, it's not very large. And what then gets the media attention are actually the pro-Putinist demonstrations, the, the, the sort of um, uh, car, uh, you know, the with, with cars in, in um, I don't know how they called car uh, uh, demonstrations or whatever, but with lots of cars with the Russian flags and so on. This is then catching the attention of the of the mass media and then is of course amplified by by Russian by Russian propaganda, state propaganda. So um, yeah, that's all a very sad story. And uh, well, the, the the saddest interpretation of for all of that is of course that. Um, at the end of the day that the Russians are then um, supporting that and that there is sort of my country right or wrong and uh, that if you have to to take a side um, in this fight and that there's no middle ground you take the side of your of your country uh, that is what is apparently at least to, to to a large part of these people who may not be supportive as such of the war happening. I mean, that suggests that perhaps when the war is over and that logic starts to subside, that there may be further destabilization, that there may be much more visible issues. But and this is this is really sort of led very, uh, very neatly into my last question here, which is that the forces that Putin is unleashed, um, say the liberal forces seem to be fairly anemic and, and vegetarian to use the uh, the russian sort of uh, phrase there but he has also unleashed forces on the other end of the scale so you mentioned daria dugina and another interpretation of her assassination or perhaps the intended target which was uh, which was her father could be that that was run by the fsb as a warning to nationalist forces not to overstep the boundaries or overstep the freedoms that they've been given so yeah. russian propaganda has moved from you know until this year until conscription and the full-scale war it's been very much about trying to persuade people not to get involved in politics not to become active to carry on as you said earlier their economic lives uh without even thinking about uh, adopting any kind of political edge to that that has changed in that liberal sentiment is not allowed but uh, but putin has given a certain leeway to extreme nationalist sentiment to pro-war sentiment um they have a much wider scope to um express themselves to an extent has putin unleashed a very dangerous force here allowing sort of anywhere between five and fifteen percent of the population military bloggers extreme nationalists it's going to be far harder to shut these guys up, especially in the event of a catastrophic defeat for Russia. Yeah, um, that's an um, interesting development. Um, and that is also perhaps something that we underestimate when we sort of uh, evaluate what drives uh, Putin's behavior. The regime's behavior is that there is this far right opposition that is now, of course, partly armed uh, because of the war. Many of these people have been in the Donbas. They have they have war experience. They may have arms, and they may have also connections to the, uh, uh, in particular, to the former so-called People's Republics in Donetsk and Luhansk, to armed units there. You know the Cossacks and all these, you know, Prigozhin types and and and. Um, and Kadyrov and so on. And uh, so this is also a, a domestic factor. Um, although sometimes uh, I think people, they it's then also overblown that people think, well, you know, if they come to power, they will be even worse than Putin. But yeah, but they would be worse than Putin. But they, I mean, that would be then, I think, the breakup really of Russia, because that is a very radical part of the 
uh, Russian society where I think there would be, um, the, you know, they would be too radical for um, for also the uh, the Russian mainstream and also they have no economic program of course they would be even more restrictive uh, on economic foreign especially foreign economic activity and they would actually drive the the current uh, um, russian economic crisis they would make it even deeper so um, i think it, it's it's important to consider it in one's uh, analysis of current russian domestic affairs but on the other hand i think it's also sometimes overestimated and I find it a slightly maybe that's a coincidence, but that you know that the the regime. So in in this year, um, in the last year, Zhirinovsky has died, and and there was an assassination on on Dugin. So two of the um, of the major um, sort of far right figures have been uh, uh, well um, in in the case of uh, of Zhirinovsky, who may have died indeed of uh, as uh, as seems to as is the sort of major version uh, perhaps of um, of corona although he had lots of uh, shots uh, he has he had um, he has he has talked a lot about his um, uh, his um, uh, vaccination against uh, corona so that uh, i found that that death of him a little bit um, suspicious but but perhaps he just died because of uh, of um, age and uh, because of illness. Um, and then this assassination attempt on Dugin, um, uh, obviously Dugin was the was the aim and, and, and not um, his, his daughter. So um, yeah, so this is all something uh, perhaps that bothers the regime much more than, um, than the liberal uh, opposition. But on the other hand, I don't think it's uh, something that really should scare us too much in our calculations about what can happen in the future in Russia. I mean, another possibility, if we assume that the sort of FSB, Sylvia Key elite control uh, or engineer a lot of what happens, as with the rise of Putin himself, uh, another alternative is that they could appoint a technocrat to sign the appropriate peace deals, to reinstate relations with the West, etc. A disposable leader, a grey figure um, who could do all that, then take the full for it. Uh, a little bit like that... Uh, ridiculous general who who uh, who gave uh, Kherson uh, away or gave it up um and i think it's quite clear now in in hindsight he was just the full guy so that the blame for that would be deflected onto a lesser figure so there are there are multiple outcomes uh, i guess and at, at this point i'm not going to ask you to to predict um what's going to happen i think it's intrinsically um up in the air isn't it well, with the uh, if you uh, I don't know whether you were referring to the succession of um, of Putin um, uh, and me, I may have mentioned that already in our last talk. I think the problem here is not that there's no successor for Putin, but there are too many successors, and there are per perhaps too many people who think that their clan, if if not they themselves, but at least their clan should be the dominating one. And then, if you don't get the first spot, uh, if your clan is not getting the presidential office, um, then it becomes actually very risky um, because you may then end up like Ulyukaev or like Lesin or, um, you know, like others who then suddenly find themselves dead or in prison or, uh, or at least out of the, um, out of the power structures. So um, I think that is the main problem for them, that they have to agree among themselves what will happen. And, uh, and there's no, they have no procedure, no, they have no method of establishing actually um, the new leader, and um, and they are all afraid of each other. Uh, so, so that is what actually makes me also hopeful that we may see then actually a break of the regime, not not uh, from the side of the opposition or the civil society or some sort of people's demonstrations or um, a Russian Euromaidan. Uh, but rather uh, that the uh, that the clans will will sort of start fighting uh, each other, and then the uh, then the system uh, will break down. I mean, knowing knowing a little bit about that Russian mindset, I mean, this is part of Putin's legacy, isn't it? That he has divided power in such a way that no one clan or entity uh, is 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 clearly dominant, and this is very much how he set the system up. Knowing Russian history, the minute one of these clans actually pulls ahead 
and manages to garner enough power and control, it's likely that the the remainders, rather than sort of going into a suicidal battle with them, will fall in behind the the leading power figure. Who that is and how it emerges, not not clear at the moment. Maybe, but I think the this transition will be very very sort of complicated uh, because there will be. As I said, the, the stakes are very high, and um, you know, if you may, you may be first. You know, there may be people who who don't want to fall into this. They don't want to be on this sort of uh, in a dependent situation. They want to have the, themselves some control, and they. I, I think that is going to be complicated for them to 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 figure out who who that person will be, and it's very much about the person actually. And then um, the, the, the closest people around that person, and then if you are already in the second circle, it becomes already uh, quite risky. You know that even if you then succumb to, and if you become then somebody who is um, actually um, not in the opposition, uh, um, you know, if you if you don't have the direct access to the um, to the first person, then you know you. It, it can become very risky for you. And, and then you have now these loose cannons like Prigozhin and Kadyrov and so on. And they they may all think that they have something to to gain or lose in, in, in a future uh, succession. And, uh, and I'm not sure that the regime is going to be able to, um, to handle all that. We can only hope that like Beria, they're dealt with very quickly. Um, Andres, it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you again. There are so many issues and questions uh, to unpack further there. Um, but um, what I'll do in the description of this video, we'll put links to uh, sort of articles and writings and to your uh, LinkedIn profile so people can explore the research you do. Um, but it again has been a tremendous pleasure speaking to you. Uh, and I'm incredibly grateful to you for, for coming on the channel again. Thanks. And um, I'm very proud to be on your channel with, with all the other celebrities. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> political celebrities yeah absolutely and academics well thank you so much uh, it's uh, it's been brilliant